0: The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance in Security on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of ClearanceJobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm Bigley Ranish.
1: Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with Clearance Jobs. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Security Clearance in Security, where we talk about all the issues related to the security clearance process that you might be too afraid to ask. Today, we have a real expert on the nuts and bolts of personnel security and the security clearance process. Really excited to be talking to Brian Mazanek, who is the Director of the Defense Capabilities and Management Team. And as a part of that team, he's with a group within the Government Accountability Office that looks into personnel security personnel security reform. So he interacts with a lot of the key folks related to the personnel security process. He's here today specifically to talk about a GAO report that came out last week related to personnel security and reform and kind of progress on a lot of the key topics related to the security clearance process that we've been talking about here thank you so much, Brian, for joining us and sharing your expertise.
2: Great. Thanks, Lindy. I'm really happy to be here.
1: I just kind of wanted to tee off for folks who don't know. I think we're kind of used to, maybe folks have heard of, again, within the intelligence community, if they're applying or DCSA, they've applied, maybe OPM. But the Government Accountability Office, at least as, as long as I've been around, has had a role to play in the security clearance process for good or bad. So kind of talk about why the GAO is concerned about personnel security, and then maybe a little bit to your role and what you're doing and kind of, in terms of helping with oversight.
2: Yeah, great question. So for those who aren't familiar with GAO, we are a legislative branch agency. We assist the Congress in exercising its constitutional oversight responsibilities across the federal government. And we do work really in every area of government. One of the key products that GAO produces is our high risk list series, which we update every two years with a new Congress. And we identify identify in that work areas that we believe based on our ongoing audits are areas in need of transformation, particularly ripe for fraud, waste and abuse and those kind of issues. The personnel security clearance area is one that has been on and off that list. We put it on specifically the DOD personnel security clearance program on our high risk list initially in 2005, primarily due to the delays and backlogs that were being experienced at the time. And we continued to monitor the area, of course, but, but that was a way to acknowledge the progress that had been made. However, There was some backsliding that occurred after we removed it from our high-risk list in 2011, which led us to put it back on the list uh, just a few years ago in uh, early 2018 for some of the same reasons, although we broadened it to be government-wide this time. So when we put it on our high-risk list in 2018 to really, again, refocus efforts in this area, it was predominantly due to again that timeliness issue that there had been some significant issues with the backlog and the timely processing of security clearances also due to some issues that pertain to measuring investigation quality and finally ensuring IT security. The three principal reasons we put it back on our high risk list. We see a lot of forward momentum and improvement, but definitely have a way to go, I think.
1: Talk to me about some of those different reports. So you've had a few different reports on personnel security process. Is there a standard timeline? You know, if you're on that high risk list, you're going to be reporting so often. And then who is the audience for those reports? Who are you kind of engaging with? as you put together the content and release those?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Lindy. So we, again, we're a legislative branch agency. The vast majority of our work is done either at request or in response to a a legislative mandate from the Congress. So this is an area that multiple committees on the Hill are really interested in. It affects so many parts of the national security enterprise. So as you can imagine, this broad congressional interest, we have typically a review or two or more at any given time on particular aspects of the security clearance enterprise. So those inform the high-risk update whenever it should occur. And we also, when we make recommendations in this area, which we've done uh, many recommendations over the past decade or two in this area, we also have a process internally where we follow up on our recommendations for at, at a minimum for five years or until successfully implemented. So that's another way we we kind of keep our toe in the water, so to speak, and, and, and track what progress is being made. We also do engage at a senior level directly with the PAC principles on the high risk designation. In fact, we had a meeting not too long ago with the PAC principles and the Comptroller General, who is the head of GAO, to discuss this high risk area their efforts, the reform efforts that are underway and, and where we think they need to focus going forward. So we kind of engage on multiple levels. Well, I, I think always have something going in this area, certainly as long as it's on the high risk list and there remains really strong congressional interest.
1: Okay, now talk to me a little bit about the national background investigation system. So INVIS was kind of the start of the show at the, at the very beginning of the report. And I think it's so important to what's going on with personal security reform. And I'm glad the GAO is highlighting it because for somebody who covers, even this process pretty significantly. I feel like I never talk about INBIS. You don't really like to talk about the technology behind the the processes. But as we know from the OPM data breach, it's pretty important the technology that's behind how you're applying for the security clearance process. And and I tend to not think about it affecting the average applicant. But somebody recently reminded me, well, anybody who (laughs) submits the eQuip is very intimately familiar with INBIS or those systems because they would probably much prefer to be filling out eApp, the new system, which is tied to this INBIS system. Again, I think it's not, can I say this to you, Brian? I say it in love. It's not the government if there aren't delays in implementing these programs. And we've seen a few delays with INBIS. And I know that that's something that the report addressed. How did you look into INBIS and what, how was it you know, noted in the report?
2: Great question. And I, I really don't think it's an understatement to, to characterize NBIS as really the linchpin to driving home the reform that's underway, that the IT side of the equation is critically important, especially going forward. And in fact, we've heard in our work meeting with the various executive branch agencies that are really involved in the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative, that in fact, some of the, the policies that are still forthcoming, they're, they're holding back on finalizing some of those until the IT is in place to really enable the transformation that they'll bring. So NBIS is is absolutely a a critical component for implementing the reforms. Components of NBIS are operational now. But as you mentioned, I mean, this is is a program that has been challenged with delays. It was rebaselined in 2020 to try to kind of get ahead of those delays and and really... uh, restart and get on a solid footing for delivering the system. What we did in in this review, again, we looked at a lot of things, but as it pertains to NBIS, we looked specifically the NBIS project schedule and assessed it against some best practices that we've developed for developing and maintaining a reliable program schedule. So this is the guidance that comes from GAO's schedule assessment guide and our agile assessment guide, since this is an agile software acquisition that we've developed looking at these kind of programs across government. We assessed the NBIS schedule against those. And this is, again, this is sort of the roadmap for delivering NBIS. And we found that, unfortunately, it was not sufficiently reliable, but there were a variety of issues that we identified. For example, looking at sort of the work breakdown structure, you should have specific tasks that have predecessor or successor activity sort of linking the interdependencies in the program activity. We found that many of those were absent or missing. It should link outcomes with sequenced activities that was not in there and we found hundreds of other anomalies. So we don't believe the NBIS schedule, and this is after they re-baselined it, is sufficiently reliable to really give DCSA the assurances it needs that it can continue at a pace and deliver NBIS when needed. So we do have a recommendation there that they update that schedule to align it fully with those best practices going forward.
1: You have a key role working with Congress. I know you work a lot with ODNI, DCSA, the government players in this. Does your role kind of have you working with industry at all or hearing from them? because a lot of these programs and systems, obviously there's contract work at play or there's other parties. There's a GAO role. Obviously you kind of have a, a clear benchmark against government and, again, government accountability to restate the obvious. But do you ever interact with industry when it comes to how these systems work or things like that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So our focus is really on the government programs here, right? That's what GAO does. But we do engage with industry as part of that work. We've certainly heard about some of the challenges with the DIS rollout. And from an industry perspective in particular, we do meet with security personnel from the defense industrial base, defense contractors, and hear about some of the pain points they're experiencing. And that will be probably part of our NBIS review that that I mentioned going forward, where we'll gather their perspectives and we will be looking holistically at, at how NBIS will interoperate and serve the needs of the full national security workforce to include industry as well as uh, uniform and civilian personnel.
1: Great. And in addition to INBIS, the other key focus that I found on your recent report was really about progress on continuous evaluation, continuous vetting. DCSA has kind of hit their, what they're calling, whatever, trusted workforce 1.25 metric, not looking into all the data sets they possibly could, but probably the ones that they are IT ready and capable to do now. A key thing I noted again in your recent report was making sure that there is some level of kind of audit or performance metric around the success within continuous evaluation. There was some efforts to do that within ODNI or the Intel community, but perhaps not full implementation? Because you can speak to that, maybe the continuous evaluation, continuous vetting aspect of what was in your most recent report.
2: We touched on that in a a couple of different ways. Continuous evaluation, CE, and eventually continuous vetting is really the fundamental paradigm change that's underway. As we looked at the implementation of Trusted Workforce 2.0, I think we give them credit for some of the significant progress in setting forth the, the policy framework that will undergird CE, and, and eventually CEV in terms of the core vetting doctrine that was published at the beginning of this year and, and so forth. But an area where we've had concern, and this really goes back beyond this most recent report, in 2017, in looking at the early stages of continuous evaluation when it was really a, a small pilot, we recommended that I develop performance measures to evaluate CE's performance as well as to help inform uh, planning on its impact on agency resources. ODNI has collected some metrics, some data points from 2017 to present to sort of inform that. But these are not the same as performance measures that will will overall assess the performance of the CE system. So in this most recent report, we actually... Since we've already made the recommendation to ODNI that they develop these performance measures and they haven't done it yet, we actually elevate it as a matter for congressional consideration for for Congress to think of action.
1: Yeah, And that makes sense. If we're saying that this is the path forward for personnel security, then we want to make sure that path is effective before we barrel all the way down the hill. So when it comes to continuous vetting, you know, continuous evaluation, there's certainly a lot of focus on how that will improve and enhance the personnel security program. Does the Government Accountability Office or does your work kind of get into the nuts and bolts of how effective that is? Or is it just making those recommendations for, hey, this is how government should be looking at these things?
2: We've looked at multiple aspects of continuous evaluation, as I mentioned. I really think before anyone can answer the question of how effective it's performing, they need to actually identify the performance measure itself, which kind of goes back to our earlier discussion. So we really do think that's a a critical first step. We have another area we focus on in our report. It's not maybe directly or exclusively tied to, to CE or CV, but we focus on the workforce planning side of the equation and in terms of uh, DCSA in particular, how they're planning for their workforce needs, just recognizing that I think CE and CV really amplify the importance of that as this transformation occurs and we essentially eliminate most periodic reinvestigations as part of CV. They're deferred under, under the 1.25 CE programs and they'll be completely Eliminated except for certain unique circumstances, once we get to 1.5 compliance CE programs next fiscal year, that's going to have implications for the background investigative workforce for DCSA across the board. We do think it's important that they evaluate their workforce for their immediate needs, but also future needs as this transformation moves out. So we have a recommendation to the Department of Defense, and again, we were pleased to see that they agreed with this as well that. DSCSA establish a milestone for completing a strategic workforce plan and issue a a strategic workforce plan to sort of help look at this question?
1: No, I think that's key. I think people forget that the clearance backlog was really caused by a dramatic, I mean, whether it's a failure of workforce planning or contract management planning, but we really saw, you know, you you can't accomplish the mission without the background investigator workforce to actually do the job. And again, if you're moving to a CE model, you want to make sure you have investigators that are primed to or workers that are, you know, how how are you managing those alerts that come in? Are those going straight to the adjudicators? Are there investigate? When does it go into field work? What is the process behind what happens to an alert when it comes in, I think is pretty important.
2: Absolutely. So we, yeah, I think that that is, is critically important that they they do that workforce assessment as part of this transformation. And I would add too, in terms of the ba- reduction of the backlog, which is a significant accomplishment that we do identify in our report too. I mean, they went from around 725,000 back in early 2018, when we uh, first put them back on the high risk list to now uh, sort of a steady state of around 200,000, which DCSA believes is sort of the the ideal workload to, to sort of manage their queue. One of the key ways they actually made that reduction was through deferral of periodic reinvestigations, which again, CE is going to really amplify that. So there's definitely a, a direct relationship there.
1: Great. And then we don't talk a lot about clearance processing times right now. And I think it's because we've seen so much reform there. And I don't know if there's something you can talk to because I don't really feel like it was a key component of the report that you just did. But obviously, I can't be who I am without talking about clearance processing times because it is always one of the top questions that we get at clearance jobs. And even the metrics around that. So The reporting numbers that we see for clearance processing times are always that fastest 90%. So since you're a guy that does these numbers, Brian, I've got to ask you, like why the determination that we're going to look at the fastest 90%? Because obviously I always hear from the poor schmuck who's like not, he's in the 10%. He's exceptional. And so he isn't waiting much longer. What is the fastest 90% the best metric to look at? If we had all those outliers in there, would that just really skew the numbers too much? Or why do they... Why do they focus on the 90% metric?
2: Yeah, not one that we've necessarily directly looked at. It's really a policy question, but that metric was initially set forth in legislation and IRTPA. And I think what it's intended to do is account for just the reality that you're going to have some individuals that are gonna take significantly more time to clear. So it's sort of the bell curve of the process, trying to eliminate those extreme outliers that would really skew the data. People who have had really, really extensive overseas experience, that kind of thing. So I can't really weigh in directly on whether or not it's the right metric. But I would note, again, I do think there's been significant improvement in the timeliness question. We don't touch on that in our current report. But in our March update to the high risk list, we did identify and report on the fact that those metrics are by agency. So a lot of times we talk about the overall timeliness, which looks a little bit better. When you slice the data by agency, each individual agency is supposed to be meeting that 90% target. And it gets the story gets to be a little more mixed where the percentage of agencies meeting those objectives is not really where it needs to be. So there's still room to improve in, in the timeliness area. And they are, I think, planning to make really a, a fulsome revision to the timeliness targets as they move towards continuous vetting. The whole paradigm will change that that really will drive probably a, a revisiting of that as well.
1: I get why those outliers are not included, but it does make for interesting data analysis. So is there anything from the report that I didn't address you think would be important for folks to know about?
2: Yeah, I think just the last thing I would highlight, and we touched on a lot of the areas, we, we covered a lot of ground in this report. The one other one we haven't talked about a great deal, but I think is also very important. And GAO loves to focus on this kind of thing, because it really is important, is performance measures beyond just the performance measure for the CE program that we talked about. We do have a recommendation in this report that they develop measures for assessing the quality of the process at every stage stage. OD and I had developed a measure that they told us they were using for assessing the quality of the investigations area, the investigations phase of the process, which we had previously recommended and we thought was important. They backed off a little bit in in terms of using the, the measure that they identify, in part, I think, because we, in our draft report that they saw commented on how it really wasn't a well-structured measure but we more importantly in our recommendation gets at this we think odni needs to develop quality measures for every phase of the process initiation investigation adjudication and and that i know it's it's often the conversation goes to the backlog to timeliness which are important areas as we just talked about but quality is critical too this this process is intended to play a you know critical role in protecting national security information and and we need to have quality in in, in the mix as well so i think that those quality measures Will be really important and we're hopeful to see I move forward in developing them.
1: Absolutely. And I love the point. It's one area where you can't do the quantity versus quality. Like we need to be able to move people quickly. That is a national security imperative. It's also an imperative that we're doing a high quality investigation when we do it. So, I, and that's what makes the job of personnel security so tough. And I also appreciate, yeah, that you're looking at quality at every stage because a lot of things fall through the cracks at the initiation stage. I will say, again, if we're teeing to processing times, If you pad the initiation stage, cases are sitting at desks, that can be a huge issue. And then the quality of adjudication matters a lot. People want to bribe their background investigator, but you're talking to the wrong person, my friend, because the adjudicator is the one making the decision and how well we're we're training, how well the adjudicators are Making the determinations critically important. Clearly, I could talk for a long time about this, Brian. Thank you. I appreciate talking to other people who talk my personnel security love language. You are certainly one of those people. Thank you for putting together this report and for your work on personnel security. Again, Brian Mazinik, who is with the Government Accountability Office, thank you so much for joining us today. <music>
3: I'm Attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at BigleyLaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am Attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm back with my co host, Lindy Kaiser of ClearanceJobs.com. We're talking this segment about a topic that is of interest, I think, to a lot of folks who are applying or reapplying for a security clearance. And that is what not to say during the process, particularly to your background investigator. Lindy, uh, I know this is something, uh, I guess the flip side of this is something uh, I should say that comes up often on the discussion boards at clearancejobs.com and things that you should be saying, things that you should be volunteering, things that you should be self-reporting. But this topic is not something that gets a lot of coverage. And and, uh, you know, you've been through the process yourself, uh, as I have, uh, of getting security clearances previously. When you went through it, was there a point in the process where you recall uh, any sort of light bulb moment of thinking, you know, gee, I, I maybe shouldn't have said that? Or, or you know, what, what should I say, you know, in this particular circumstance?
1: Yeah, well, it's, we talk about it a lot. There are two sides of the coin, and that is the kind of the guilt grabber person who decides to use their background investigator as a therapist. And so we've talked about this previously, and it kind of led to this conversation of saying, hey, your background investigator is not there to judge you. They're not making a value judgment. The issue where it comes up most frequently where I come across it is someone didn't disclose something on the SF-86, obviously, and for some reason, it's kind of like when you go in for a polygraph. If you go in for an interview with a person, suddenly another warm body is across the table from you or even talking to you on the phone, and you happen to disclose things that you didn't previously, which always better to disclose something that you should have that you didn't but then over disclosures tend to also happen which is why like I'm always like just attention to detail is one of the best assets you can have if you want to successfully and quickly obtain a security clearance and I think that's how it comes across for me someone ends up sharing oversharing And using their background investigator as a therapist. Have you come across that in in your legal practice or even yourself as a background investigator where people were disclosing things that they shouldn't have?
3: Yeah, all the time. You know, there are certainly circumstances where it behooves an applicant to speak up and volunteer something that isn't specifically being asked. And a great example is let's say you previously used marijuana and you're no longer using, and there are specific mitigating conditions in the adjudicative guidelines that might be applicable to your case. And we've talked about this before, the importance of understanding and and reading those adjudicative guidelines before you go into the process so that you know what you're being evaluated against. So if you've done that and you, you see in the adjudicative guidelines, for example, that a statement of intent regarding your future use, specifically that you're not going to use again in the future is a mitigating factor. That's something that you can volunteer. That you know you'd be happy to sign a statement of intent. That you'd be happy to agree to random drug testing. Those are things that could potentially be mitigating and might help sway things in your favor without the need for, for example, responding to a statement of reasons or, or some other appeal process. So there are times when you know speaking up and and volunteering and being your own advocate is very helpful. But once you bring something to the government's attention, they have the ability and the authority to adjudicate it and so even though it may not have otherwise come to their attention now they have the information and it's something that could be held against you.
1: Reading the form with detail is key because I think a lot of folks, we get a lot of questions about, hey, what am I going to get asked about during the course of a background investigation? What is this interview all about? Well, go back to your SF-86. That's what it's about. I mean, is that, I mean, I feel like that's a common misconception that people have that they think the background investigator is there to catch them, but it is a lot more box checking and verifying information. And yes, they might follow up on something that's not clear but they really aren't there to try to get you to disclose things that aren't on the form so your best preparation for your background investigation interview is reviewing your SF86
3: yeah absolutely and you know in the the realm of things not to to volunteer or or not to say to your investigator Anything speculative really would fall in that category. And this goes back to precisely what you said. Understand what the government is looking for and what the scope of the inquiry is. And that, and generally, the scope of the inquiry is the SF 86. Now, there are times when somebody, for example, a reference volunteers some derogatory information that, you know, that may be something that's not typically within the scope of the SF 86. That is very different than speculating about. Answers or or things that aren't specifically being asked about.
1: Bad idea to bribe your background investigator. Perhaps have you ever come across anyone who has tried to do just that? Maybe ask, "Hey, can you not disclose this?" Or someone who is looking to kind of pull one over on the background investigator, either from your personal experience or in any cases you've. Oh seen.
3: sure, you know when I was an investigator, there were a few occasions where I would show up to interviews and. Folks would offer food or they would offer what might be construed as gifts or, or, you know, efforts to kind of sway the investigator's view of them. And, you know, as we've talked about before, the investigator isn't there to make a, a judgment call on the applicant. They're not there to pass judgment or, or really do anything other than record the facts but that isn't a good look. And if your investigator is ethical and doing their job, not only are they not going to accept that, but if it crosses a line, it may be viewed as something that is of adjudicative significance regarding your character. There have been cases, not involving myself, but uh, cases that I'm aware of over the years where it's been a little bit more of a quid pro quo, and those are a big problem. So, I think just a a basic awareness of what the issues are in your case or the potential issues is going to go a long way in helping you understand where the weaknesses are, where the potential trigger points are, helping you understand what possible questions may be asked as follow-ups. And the only additional thing that I'll add to that is there is a question that trips up a lot of applicants during the process. It throws people for a loop, not something that's on the SF86, but it is A standard question that's asked during the course of a background investigation interview. And that is, is there anything else about you we don't know that could be used against you for blackmail? You know, you can imagine sometimes that opens up Pandora's box. And going back to this speculation issue, sometimes people take it a little too far. And in their well-meaning efforts to be transparent, they start rambling about things that aren't really relevant or, or maybe subjective. You know, now that they've opened Pandora's box, it's something that the government can adjudicate. So when in doubt, I always tell folks, talk to an attorney beforehand. We're here for a reason and getting good legal advice is worth its
0: weight in gold. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.